you're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Going on, Team Buck. Mike Slater, last day. I'm filling in. Buck, we'll be back tomorrow, all charged up, ready to roll. Thanks for uh, your patience and, and your grace and kindness to me these last uh, couple of days. Coming up, we're going to talk about uh, the passports, the COVID passports, and how ridiculous uh, that is. And then an amazing article from the great Wilfred Riley, who is. Uh, the next generation of Thomas Sowell. He's the next Thomas Sowell. Uh, he's wonderful. So we'll talk about uh, race relations and the truth of race relations in America. That's coming up. First, Express VPN. You trust big tech? Do you trust them? I don't. There's no reason anyone, <laughs> anyone should. Uh, I want to surf the internet freely without wondering who's going to ho- get a hold of everything I do. Like, and they know everything. They know every website you go to, then everything you type in, they know everything where your uh, cursor is on your computer. They know everything. They know how long you spend on each web page. They know every single thing you do online, unless you get ExpressVPN and it changes your IP address. So these companies don't know uh, where you're doing, where you're searching from. ExpressVPN.com. Buck has been trusting them for, for a long time. So do I. ExpressVPN.com slash Buck and you get three extra months expressvpn.com slash buck. What's going on, Team Buck? America is the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. The great disappointment continues. I'm not Buck. But Buck will be back tomorrow. I will assure you I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for uh, sticking around these last couple of days. Uh, one of the most pivotal things I've ever heard, uh, It's I, I think about it every day for maybe the last two years since I first heard it. It's from the great Thomas Sowell. He said, there's no such thing as solutions, only trade-offs. Conservatives understand this. Progressives do not. Progressives look for their utopian visions, and they seek to achieve them. Conservatives understand that in life, there are no such thing as solutions. There are only trade-offs. It's true with everything. Do I buy this? Do I not buy this? Do I go here, not go there? Invest in this? Don't invest in that. Well, there's no such thing as solutions. It's only a trade-off. Life's full of them, nonstop, all day. Life's also full of risks. And we calculate those risks all the time. Driving a car is very risky, but you got to get to work. So you calculate it. Is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth the risk. Getting an accident, got to get to work. We are doing a poor job of risk calculation with COVID on this March 30th, 2021. We're acting like it's March 30th, 2020. We're calculating risk. As if millions of people haven't already taken one of these soon-to-be five vaccines that we have in America, which is amazing because for a while we weren't sure if there would ever be a vaccine. And we're not taking into effect, into account that millions more have now natural immunity because they got COVID and recovered. We're not properly calculating risk analysis. And this is what's leading to the vaccine passport that's being thrown around. And that is a very, very bad idea. When you drive a car, there's a certain risk you're going to get in an accident and die. Imagine if I told you, hey, Charlie, I have impending doom of your driving today. Don't do it. I'm scared you'll die. You have so much promise, so much potential in life. Don't do it. Don't drive today. That emotional plea would would screw up your calculation, your risk calculation. 
and lead you to make a not proper analysis and a not good decision. We're still doing that with COVID very specifically. This is the head of the CDC, head of the CDC. She's getting all emotional when she's saying this. She says, I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are and so much reason for hope. But right now I'm scared. Lady, this is not helpful. That is feelings over facts. How is this helpful to the American people to have this woman of science say, I'm going to, I'm going to go off script and I'm going to reflect on the feelings I have of impending doom. Why are you unloading your feelings on us? I'm not interested in feelings. I'm interested in facts. What are the facts? Now you don't have to sugarcoat things to me. I'm an adult. Give me the reality of the situation, but you also don't have to start to cry and try to emotionally manipulate me. But she got her headlines. She got our attention. And for what? Oh, to usher in the fear that's necessary to keep you masked, keep you controlled, keep you shut down, keep you locked down, keep you scared until we can get the vaccine passport. And that will save the day. The government once again coming in to save the day, rescue us on their white horse. That is a super dystopian vaccine passport. Jim Treacher, he said, if despair is a disease, the CDC is doing a crappy job of controlling it. They may be the main spreader of it. So this is Biden yesterday saying we got to keep the mask mandates, keep locking down, keep our kids out of school, keep everyone scared. So let's talk about this vaccine passport, a stunningly horrific idea. Uh, so right now he says they're gathering ideas on how this passport, what it would look like and how it would work. But it looks like it'd be something like an app on your phone that you would use you know, your papers, your health papers to show that you've been vaccinated so that you can go on an airplane or eat at a restaurant or go to a concert. I, I, I can't, <laughs> first of all, it's, un, it's not necessary. Let's just start there. This is not necessary. We never did this for the flu. Disney World, Disneyland never shut down for flu. This is a disease, COVID, that once we get herd immunity, I'd argue we're already there, it barely spreads. Uh, remember, um, Israel right now has a uh, the R naught, which is how fast the disease spreads. If it's over one, it spreads. If it's less than one, it doesn't. The R naught in Israel is 0.7. Okay, so it's not spreading. It's not growing. So if if you get it, most people don't even get sick. Most people don't even know you get it. Very few people need medical treatment. We have new drugs out there that eliminate death that just finished their phase three trial, that just yesterday finished their phase three trial, they're getting emergency authorization from the FDA right now. This is completely unnecessary. Two weeks to flatten the curve to prevent hospitals from being overrun. Talk about moving the goalposts. This is a, this is a different stratosphere of goalposts. It's completely unnecessary. We've never done this for any flu. We've never done this for any other illness. There's no need to start now because I guarantee you, once a passport, a health vaccine passport starts now, they're never going to get rid of it. They will only add more things to it. And if you can't see that by now in your X number of years of life and watching government and watching this country, I don't know what could possibly convince you of that. It must be stopped now. It cannot start. Once it starts, it'll never stop. Thank goodness. 
for Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, taking the lead on this. He says, we always said we wanted to provide the vaccine, provide the vaccine for all, but mandate it for none. While it was advised to take, particularly if you're vulnerable, we're not going to force you to do it. It's completely unacceptable for either the government or the private sector to impose upon you the requirement that you show proof of vaccine to just simply participate in normal society. New York City's started, they call it the Excelsior Pass. Excelsior is the motto of the state, the Excelsior, ever upward. So you need this, you need your vaccine pass, your Excelsior Pass, to be able to, oh, I hate these people, these branding of this, right? Uh, just saying the HR1, not to sidetrack, HR1, it's this horrific voting reform act, passed the House and the Senate, it's called the For the People Act. Goodness. If you hear the For the People Act, like th- you better be throwing red flags on the field. <laughs> it's like, like, oh, not buying that. Nice try. Flag on the field. <laughs> What's this bill really about? Same thing with Excelsior Pass. Oh, everybody, this is the Excelsior Pass. Nope, don't like it. What do you mean you don't like it? It's called the Excelsior Pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nope, you're hiding something. What is it really? You need it in order to get into Madison Square Garden and the Barclays Center for events and other arts and entertainment venues. So in order to live your life, you need, you need your papers. First of all, so again, first point, I should say, unnecessary. Second point, what about equity? Oh, what about equity? All of a sudden, equity doesn't, doesn't mean it. What about lower-income people who don't have smartphones? They can't download the app. Hmm, what are you going to do then? You're going you're gonna to prevent them from ever going to an arts event? Oh, how racist of you. We're told at the same time, you know, Georgia passed SB 202. It requires an ID to vote. We're told how terrible and awful and evil and, and uh, Jim Crow 2.0 and Biden called it sick to require someone to show government ID to vote just to show that you're a real person in order to vote. That's the worst thing ever. If you, if you support that, you're the grand wizard of the KKK. But a vaccine passport to be able to go inside a building? Full steam ahead. How could you possibly be against that? Well, isn't that inequitable? If, 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 listen, the people who are against that Georgia bill, they're the ones who say black people are too stupid or poor to get a government ID. I don't say that. That'd be horribly racist. They're the ones saying that. But they are requiring everybody to get a vaccine passport in order to do anything with their life. Well, what about that same percentage of people? Also, this is the same people who don't care about the, the tens of thousands of people streaming across our border without any actual passport or paperwork but americans need passports in order to live our normal lives in america what what is going on who could possibly be for this it's so bizarre like people are still thinking they're still operating like we're living in this dystopian world where people are dropping like flies like it's the plague have you ever read about the plague oh my goodness you get it there's a sign that you have it and you're dead in two days and parents would have to make these horrific decisions like what to do with their kid who has the plague do you just abandon the kid to die alone and or do you stay with them and you risk getting it and dying immediately afterwards there's nothing anyone could do. it's like a horrific people are living like that's what that's what we're doing people are still living based off what we thought covid was not what it is especially with vaccines and all the rest 
Yes, people are still going to get it. People are still going to get sick. You can't make any COVID or any illness down to zero. Life is a trade-off. There's no such thing as solutions, only trade-offs. I'll end on this. Think of it as four baskets. There's four baskets of health. The left only thinks of physical health, and they want to make sure no one ever gets COVID ever again. But there's other baskets. You have emotional health, spiritual health, economic health, and physical health. And you have 100 balls, and you decide how many balls you want to put in each basket. Some put more in the physical health basket. Fine. I put more in the spiritual health basket. I think churches should be open. In California, they're still not. And everybody's got to come up with their own decision on how many balls to put into each of these different baskets to find the best balance of emotional, spiritual, economic, and physical health. It's also worth noting that these baskets are underneath this umbrella of freedom. And no illness is worth giving up our freedom. No illness, especially something as mild as COVID. People still acting like it's the plague. We should be a country that's celebrating the end of COVID right now. And instead, we're, just, we're debating dystopian vaccine passports. Insanity. We're not rats in a cage. Stop treating us like we are. Mike Slater. Filling in for Buck Sexton. MikeSlater.locals.com. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater in San Diego. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for letting me be here these last few days. Buck will be back tomorrow. MikeSlater.locals.com is our website. We can stay in touch. Until next time. Um, this is maybe a good time to talk about it after I got a little, a little heated. COVID lockdowns and masks and the vaccines and the whole thing, it's taken on a religious fervor, right? There's a religious fervor to it. Comply or you're excommunicated from the church. If you don't get a vaccine, you're impure, Right? We mentioned this from time to time on, on my local show. We probably have over the last couple of days, even in passing. People are less religious than ever in America, but we are designed by our creator to worship. So if you don't worship him, God, you will worship something. Most people worship themselves. That's why a lot of people say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. No, you, what you're saying is you worship yourself. You're just making up your own religion and you worship you. And a lot of people worship politics. So as we leave church, we've entered this different church. <laughs> as we leave the church of God, we've entered this different church of politics. And there's no longer political parties. We are now warring denominations. God is no longer the center of our lives or the center of our culture the God who can unite us all. No, we all have our own idols and we pray at the pagan altar of politics. Politics doesn't have, you know, this, this nice little proper place in our existence. It, for many people, is the center of our existence and that is unhealthy. There's an article in The uh, Economist. It's unhealthy for individuals and it's unhealthy for a country. Uh, the Economist says um, the evangelical culture warriors on the right, that's me, take on the Democrats' new Puritans. So they start off talking about how Biden is such a great Catholic who, you know, supports gay marriage and abortion. 
and how Americans are more likely than ever now to claim no religion as their religious preference, but we're no less devotional. No less devotional. We just worship new things, the self first and foremost, and then politics. And this article mentions this God-sized hole in your heart. And that's what I want to talk about here for the remaining two and a half minutes. The God-sized hole in your heart that's left when you remove God. And it can't be filled with anything else. The entirety of human history proves that it cannot be filled with anything else. This is why one of my favorite genres of documentary and one of my favorite genres of story are celebrities who thought that fame and fortune would give them everything and it doesn't and we'll never learn my wife and i we recently watched this paris hilton documentary it's on youtube uh she is absolutely miserable and she said growing up that when she makes a million dollars she'll be happy and then she said when she makes a hundred million dollars she'll be happy and then she said in the documentary that if only she made a billion dollars She's traveled the world. She's never left her hotel room. She has no friends, no one she can trust. At one point in the documentary, she's met at the airport by a bunch of fans who's in Japan or something. And these two fans come up to her and they say they drove a couple hours to see her and they take a selfie. And then later that night in the hotel room, she's super depressed and miserable. And she says that she has no friends that really love her. And she says, yeah, I have no friends that really love me, you know, except for Sophie and Katie. And I'm thinking, who's Sophie and Katie? What would Oh, oh, those are the two girls that she met at the airport for 30 seconds. And the, the documentarian says, do you have anyone who cares for you? And Paris Hilton looks off in the distance and she looks confused and she says, what does that mean? She thought there were other things that could fill that God-sized hole in her heart. And there's, there's nothing else. That expression, it comes from this 17th century philosopher and theologian. His name's Pascal. He's the guy who also said, uh, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room. Which means you're, just, you're not at peace. You're not at peace with yourself. So Pascal, here's the full quote. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness. There was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. What does it prove? What does it proclaim? That he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. That's where the expression God-sized hole comes from. This is, um, by the way, the, the Puritan church today of the, the woke left. Absolute purity, no deviation, no forgiveness, no grace, no, grace, no redemption. If anyone is going to drown witches today, it's the woke left. This is not good. Because now real churches are actually going to split along political lines as well. This is very bad. God should be a uniting force. The good news, the gospel should unite. And we're letting politics divide. And you know who loves it? Satan. 
and the politicians. But I repeat myself. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater in San Diego, filling in for Buck for one more day. Buck will be back tomorrow. I'm as grateful as you are. Can't wait for uh, to hear Buck again. Uh, MikeSlater.locals.com if you'd like to follow us there. MikeSlater.locals.com. That's our website, getting off big tech. Uh, the great Wilfred Riley is a professor at Kentucky State. Uh, he's wonderful. I think he's the next Thomas Sowell. I want to quote a bit from his latest piece, and then we'll go through it in detail. It's like, well, it's about race relations in America. Uh, he says, the, the, this picture, which we'll get to, this picture perfectly sums up the dualistic nature of race relations in America today. The real picture itself is quite favorable. If we can just manage to clean up all the thrown muck off the canvas long enough to get a good look at it and appreciate it. So his argument is, and my argument is, that race relations in America are better than ever and actually great. There just happen to be a few race baiters out there who have this absolute mega microphone, or I guess mega megaphone, who get way too much attention and way too many accolades and have like way disproportionate amount of institutional support way too much power and control in the media news tv music everywhere i wonder if i wonder if ever such a small group of people have had so much institutional power and because they do they paint this picture for their own power and prestige and it's easy for the rest of us to get wrapped up in it and to have these people change your perception of reality they have so much control over your kids, too. And your kids now don't have a proper perspective of what reality is. Uh, we mentioned yesterday, I think, that if you ask any kid today in high school about slavery, they'll tell you that it's a uniquely white man sin, that only white people have uh, enslaved black people, and they'll tell you, uh, many will tell you that it's a uniquely American evil, which is preposterous. But that's what they're told. And there's all these race baiters in schools that are telling kids that being black is a disaster. Being black is a death sentence in America. You'll never get ahead. LeBron James saying he's scared to go outside. It's open season. They're hunting black people. You'll never make anything out of yourself. You have no chance. You'll never be successful. You have it no better than the slaves. Maybe even worse. Your life is hopeless. That's the message that's being spread. And all you have to do is buy this book so you can see how bad you have it. And hire me to do your diversity seminar at, at your work so that I can tell white people how terrible they are as well. It's grifting. It's for money. It's for power. It's to make themselves feel better, and it's not true. So let's look at some data, shall we? First, You've heard the income gap between white and black people. You've heard of that before, right? Uh, white people on average earn $65,000 a year. Black people on average earn $43,000 a year. That's a gap. Now, a uh, Marxist with a Marxist worldview looks at everything through the lens of oppressed versus oppressor. So anytime there's a dis disparity or an inequality, they put it through that framework of, oh, well, here's the oppressed people. And here are the oppressors. 
conservatives look at a disparity and say, okay, well, what are the cultural factors at play? Slash, what are the individual choices that people make that have led to a disparity? Very different. So if you take that conservative approach and you look at, okay, well, what's going on here? Why, why do black, white people earn 65,000? This is on average, and you know, that's a faulty metric too because there's a lot of people here. But 65,000, uh, white people, 43,000 from black people. What's happening here? Okay, well, um, first, we have to account for age. Who generally has more money? If you lined up a 58-year-old and a 27-year-old, which of those two people are going to have more money and a higher net worth? A 58-year-old or a 27-year-old? The 58-year-old. They've been working longer. Working longer, accumulating more wealth. They're more knowledgeable. They have more wisdom and insight. They're... Uh, they command more money because they're better at their job because they've been doing it longer, right? The average, the, or sorry, it's to say the most common age of a white person in America is 58. The most common age for a black person is 27. That alone has, accounts for a massive difference in incomes. Because again, who's going to make more money, the 27-year-old or the 58-year-old? Well, the 58-year-old will. So when you have a group with more 58-year-olds, that group is going to make more money. You account for that alone, and most of that disparity is gone. Is that oppression? No. I got some more data. Uh, shootings. People's perceptions way off. We shared the other day, 44% of liberals, 44% think that police kill over 1,000 unarmed black men every year. That's three a day. Let me ask you the question. How many unarmed black men are killed by police officers every day, every year? And important to note, unarmed black men doesn't necessarily mean like the guy was innocent. Like, I don't know the, the circumstance in each of these cases, but you know, an, an unarmed man could still be running at a police officer, at, right? So, but how many unarmed black men are killed by police officers every year? 44% of liberals think it's over 1,000. What do you think it is? 500, 2,000, 3,000. 450. What do you think the answer? The answer is 13. So why do half of liberals think that police are killing three unarmed black men a day? What messages are liberals getting that has zero resemblance to reality at all? When asked what percentage of people, how do I word this properly? Uh, all right. So police shoot a certain number of people a year. What percentage of them are black? Progressives think it's 60%. In reality, it's 25. Our perceptions are way off. 75% of police shootings, therefore, are against white and Hispanic people. Right? 75% of police shootings are against white and Hispanic people. But that doesn't get media attention. The media covers that 25% as with nearly 100% of their coverage. So people therefore think it's nearly all the shootings. Years and years ago, I went to the, uh, the gay part of town in San Diego. Uh, it's called Hillcrest. And uh, for their gay pride parade. Right? Went down to the gay pride parade. And I asked people, had a microphone, a camera. It's on the internet somewhere. Uh, I went around and I said, what percentage of men in America are gay? What percentage of men of America are gay? You can see the video. And people are like, um, I don't know, 40%. 40% of, of men are gay. 
Someone said 70%, 25%, maybe, maybe half, maybe half of people are gay. <laughs> like, and I didn't edit the video at all. Like I used all the answers. No one was close. No one was anywhere near the right answer of 2%. So think about that. Think about these people who are at this gay pride parade and they're like, yeah, 70% of men are gay. What? What are you talking about? By the way, I'm not trying to dunk on anyone with this. This is great news. What I'm sharing is great news. Just like COVID, right? We should be celebrating that COVID's over. Take your masks off. Let's, let's have a hug and go, go to work and go to, to a restaurant. It's great news. But no one's happy. No one's celebrating. Too much money to be made in grievance. Too much money to be made in, in power. Too much money to be made in control. Same thing with all this race stuff. Too much money to be made in grievance. Too much money to be made in self-pity. Too much money. Too much attention. Too much power. Victimhood is a powerful drug. You know, it's so, it's so wild. I, I, people are like, oh, so you're being racist. What, what, what do you mean? How is it racist to report some facts? Going against the narrative is racist? Why? Oh, because I'm not sensitive enough? Sensitive to what? You've heard uh, there's Gallup polls. It says 8% of people would never vote for a qualified black person to be president. 8% of people would never vote for a qualified black person to be president. This was in 2015. Well, 7%, in that same poll, 7% said they'd never vote for a Catholic. 8% said they never vote for a woman. A woman. 9% said they never vote for a, a, a Jew. 19% said they never vote for a Mormon. So the conclusion I get from this poll is that about 7% of people are racist. <laughs> about racist or biased or whatever. And that's about right. Which, by the way, would be the lowest percentage of racists in a society ever. No one's ever been more pluralistic, more ethnically diverse in human history. And what? Five seven percent of people are biased <laughs> right and that's that's what you, you this took a lot of work to get to that point by the way the civil war for one six hundred thousand americans killed to end slavery civil rights movement it ended 50 years ago people are still acting like nothing's changed you take the ethnic groups in america with the 10 highest incomes seven of them are of color people from africa and the caribbean have higher incomes than white people in america it never makes sense to me that people can be racist or that we're told that people can be racist against a black person from Detroit, but not the black person from Jamaica. And the race baiters know this. This is why in the absence of actual tangible racism, and that's why they make up hate crimes all the time. How many nooses have African-American studies professors hung outside their own offices? Or people seeing hate crimes. Like my favorite one was there was a noose up in a tree in Oakland. Everyone freaked out. The mayor freaked out turned out to be a rope left behind by an African immigrant who set up these ropes to, to do some exercise in the park. All right, so people are seeing hate crimes, making up hate crimes. So in the absence of actual tangible hate crimes, they've made up systemic racism. Oh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You just can't see it. I'll end with Wilfred Riley. He says, an ambitious young man or woman of color applying to virtually any selective college or university to say nothing of government or Fortune 500 jobs enjoys a substantial advantage over an equally qualified white peer. Yet we are told from the mountaintops that we are the most racist society ever created and in existence today. It is a total, absolute lie. MikeSlater.locals.com. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton for one last day. Buck will be back tomorrow. So uh, I don't know if you do uh, Lent, uh, but you're, all, you're almost done. You almost made it. Uh, whether you 
are Christian or not, or, or practice Lent or not, um, this is still a good thing to do. Give stuff up. So uh, Lent, if you're not familiar, you give something up for 40 days up until Easter here. Um, you should just do that. You should just give things up. So 21% of people gave up social media. 18% gave up alcohol. 13% gave up uh, sweets. 11% gave up soda. So just a little, the risk of sounding like Jocko. Uh, if it's a good idea to give these things up for 40 days, it's probably a good idea just to give these things up just entirely, right? Just You should just give it up. You should just not drink soda anymore at all, for instance. But I want to talk about uh, the importance of giving these things up just for your soul, for your brain, for your body, for your life. It's true, first of all, that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think one reason why people are depressed a lot in our society is because everything is available all the time. We have no delayed gratification. We have instant gratification nonstop all the time. And when you're constantly, instantly gratified, you don't experience pleasure anymore. One study, there's uh, three groups of people. One was told to eat as much chocolate as they possibly can. Another was told to eat as much as they wanted. And a third was told not to eat any for a while, and then they could have a small amount. And it was the third group that derived the most happiness. Oh, I forgot that I, I got to tell the story real quick. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to a man who was taken captive in World War II. He was a small boy. He was eight years old. He was living in the Philippines, and he was sent to live in a, uh, in a internment camp. He was eight years old with his 11-year-old brother. He was there for three years. He weighed like like 50 pounds. Right? It was horrific. His mother or his aunt, because they were separated from their families, their aunt would grow, uh, would uh, boil uh, their leather soles of their shoes for food. At one point, he would steal garbage from the Japanese guards and they would boil that and he would drink the, the broth from garbage. One day, the Red Cross was able to drop in some stuff, and there was a chocolate bar, a Hershey's chocolate bar. And Tom said he and his brother each took one square, and every day they would take one lick, not even a bite. Every day they would take one lick. He said it was heavenly. Who do you think appreciates that chocolate bar more? Tom? Or someone who just gorges themselves all day with chocolate bars? Right? We notice this with toys with our kids. When our kids start acting greedy and, and all that, we just get rid of all the toys because they're just not appreciating it. They're overwhelmed. We become numb to pleasure. I'll end with uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. He wrote an amazing letter to his daughter. Let me put it on the website, mikeslater.locals.com. It's one of my favorite letters. Du Bois letter. A uh, little note to myself. Um, he wrote this letter to his daughter who was going to private school uh, in England. She was like 16. And he wrote this, some amazing stuff about her being black and all stuff. But at the end, he says, read some good, heavy, serious books just for discipline. 
take yourself in hand and master yourself. Make yourself do unpleasant things so as to gain the upper hand of your soul. I'll put the full letter on the website, mikeslater.locals.com. And I'll put another quote up there from Seneca. Seneca said, he gave some advice to his friend. He said, set aside a certain number of days where you eat disgusting food and you wear really uncomfortable clothes and you sleep on the ground just so that at the end of it, you can say to yourself, this is the condition I feared. He says, I then assure you, my dear Lucilius, you will leap for joy when filled with a penny worth of food. And you'll understand that a man's peace of mind does not depend upon fortune. For even when angry, fortune grants enough for our needs. Put all that on the website, mikeslater.locals.com. Coming up next, I want to talk about uh, the George Floyd trial and the truth. Well, I'll just tell you what the, what the defense is going to present, and you can decide what to do with that. We'll do that coming up next. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Oh, the great disappointment continues. Where's Buck? Bring back Buck. He'll be back tomorrow. Uh, I'm Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck. One last day. Thank you for letting me be here the last few days. It's a wonderful honor. And uh, Buck's the man. I'm looking forward to him coming back as well. George Floyd trial. You ready? This has the potential to be an absolute disaster for this country. Trial started yesterday, uh, continuing, obviously, today. Uh, So Derek Chauvin charged with murder. Uh, The others are charged as accomplices to the murder. And the prosecution has to prove that Derek Chauvin, uh, well, there's a couple different charges, right? Uh, and, and everyone is going to be very, uh, very up on second degree murder and third degree murder and what the differences between all these are. But I want to be very clear with what this trial is not. This trial is not, was this thing sad? Was this a bad event? Did I wish this not happen? Did this thing make me upset? Those, the answer to those, all those things are, is yes. That's not a criminal trial. This prosecution needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, unanimously by the jury, that this police officer intentionally murdered George Floyd. That's one of the charges. The other, charge, the other one is that in the act of committing a felony offense, murdered George Floyd. So they have to prove that what Derek Chauvin did, and they're not going to be able to do this, as I'll talk in a second, he went beyond his role as a police officer, was, was committing a felony offense, felony assault, and in that act murdered him. I do not believe they are going to be able to prove that. Now, does it even matter? <laughs> it's another question. Like it's, this is like the OJ trial, right? Nothing that uh what's her name in the oj trial said or did uh what's her name the, who's the lawyer marcia 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 oj trial marcia marcia what's her last name marcia clark nothing she did nothing anyone could have done would have resulted in that jury saying that oj simpson was guilty of murder there's not so i hope she doesn't feel bad about it there's nothing she could have done Please, if you have not watched the documentaries about O.J. Simpson, you must watch them. There's two. One's a documentary, and one is more like a miniseries. Kind of. They're both fantastic. Watch them both. And it is true that once he was said not guilty, one of the jurors got out of the box and gave O.J. 
the black power salute fist in the air. There is no chance that that guy would have said that O.J. Simpson was guilty and should go to jail. Okay? So it entirely depends on jury selection and who's on this jury. And I don't know what that exactly looks like. But my, that's my, another point about human nature. Is like, does it even matter, really, what is put forward on this trial? Or is every single juror's mind already made up? But that being said, it has to be unanimous in order to prove him guilty. And that's a high bar. But the courtroom in Minneapolis is it's like where they're having the trial. It's like, it's like a war zone. Concrete barriers everywhere, barbed wire, everything's blockaded up. And those jurors know that if this police officer is found not guilty and is allowed to walk, that activists will burn everything to the ground, not only in Minneapolis, but in every city in this country. If these officers are acquitted, the reaction is going to be worse than when George Floyd first died. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, defense that Derek Chauvin is going to present so you can be prepared for this. Uh, and when people and when your people at work or family members, when they come to you and they are coming at you of with just their feelings and their emotions of it was bad. I hated seeing it. It was hard to watch. You're like, OK, yeah, not a, that's not criminal trial. That's not what this is. I agree with you. It was hard to watch. I agree with you. It was terrible, unfortunate, awful. Not what the criminal trial is about. So what they're going to show is the medical exam and the toxicology report. Also, don't get mad at me for sharing this either. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. And I'm telling you, I, I think they're going to get acquitted. Everyone's going to flip out. Biden and Harris, oh my goodness, they're going to call the, oh, what a gross injustice of the American court system. How could this have happened? We live in such a racist country. Black men could be murdered by the police on broad daylight. Whole thing. Anyway. Medical report, toxicology report. The medical report says that there was no injury to George Floyd's neck. Ooh, that's gonna no one's wanting gonna no one's gonna want to believe that that's the premise of this whole thing right the officer kneeled on his neck so he couldn't breathe but here's the medical report saying there were no injuries to his neck and no evidence that his airway was ever blocked well hold on i thought he choked i thought he suffocated him and choked him all on the ground and you're telling me that the medical report says that his airway was never blocked what are we No one's going to believe that. Here's the medical report. No life-threatening injuries identified. No injuries of anterior muscles of neck or laryngeal structures. Larynx, breathing. No one's going to want to believe that. This is the criminal charge against Derek Chauvin. It says the medical examiner has made the following preliminary findings. The autopsy revealed no physical findings that support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia, asphyxia or strangulation. Huh. Mr. Floyd had underlying health conditions, including coronary artery disease and hypertensive heart disease. The combined effects of Mr. Floyd being restrained by the police, his underlying health conditions, and any potential intoxicants in his system likely contributed to his death. So it wasn't the knee on the neck. 
Now it's that last line there, any potential intoxicants in his system. George Floyd said, I can't breathe during this situation, event, occurrence. Seven times he said, I can't breathe before he was even on the ground. Before there was even a neck, a knee on the neck. Which leads to the toxicology report. George Floyd had 11 nanograms of fentanyl per milliliter of blood. Now, I have no idea what that means. If you, if someone, if someone said, hey, how many nanograms of fentanyl per milliliter? I was like, oh, like 100 or four. I, like, I don't know. Three is fatal. Three. He had 11 nanograms. Even among hardcore habitual users of fentanyl, which there aren't many and not for long, but there was a study of overdose deaths of people who used fentanyl regularly. Nine nanograms was the median fatal dose. George Floyd had 11. One of the consequences of an overdose is called pulmonary edema. This is when fluid fills up the lungs. The media, the uh, medical report says his lungs were two to three times the weight of normal lungs. That means they were filled with fluid. In the body cam footage, early on, this is very early on, before the police car was even involved, right? before they even tried to get him in the police car, an officer asked him, why are you foaming at the mouth? Why are you foaming at the mouth? This is before things got heated. This is before, again, they tried to get him in the, right? An officer said, why are you foaming at the mouth? And George Floyd said, earlier I was hooping. I have the audio. It's hard to hear, but I have the audio. Early, he said, I was hooping. Hooping is when you place drugs in your anus. What America saw was a man die of a drug overdose. And the reason why these officers, I believe, are going to be acquitted and people are going to burn every city to the ground is that these police officers followed Minneapolis police protocol on every single thing they did. They tried to get him in the car, and he said, I don't want to go in, I don't want to go in, I don't want to go in. And they said, okay, fine, we'll roll down the windows. He said, I'm claustrophobic. All right, we'll roll down the windows. We'll put on the AC. You just got to get in the car. George Floyd asked to get on the ground. And there were three officers on top of them. This is really interesting. When you first saw the video, or the main video, you don't see the other two officers. You just see Derek Chopin on top of his neck because the car is in the way. You don't see the other two officers, one on his lower back and one on his legs. This is what officers are trained to do. Now, you can be against that if you want. You can say that's wrong. We've got to get rid of that. Great. I'll definitely have that conversation. But can you charge an officer with murder when they are completely following textbook police protocol as they were trained? If you can, how can anyone be a police officer? Also, they, these officers, they called the ambulance twice. Once when George Floyd hit his head on the police car, they called the ambulance for that reason. These are not people that are going out of their way to murder someone. The charge against Derek Chauvin of murder was made two days before the toxicology report was issued. To me, that suggests that this was a political decision by the prosecution because the activists were going crazy and the, the, the prosecutor, prosecutor needed to give the city, needed to give the activists what they wanted. And they went too soon. They got out too soon in front of it before the toxicology report was released. We talked on my radio show 
with the former, I forget his exact title, but he was uh, in Philadelphia for decades and he prosecuted uh, police abuse crimes, like, like, a, like police officers abusing people, like use of force, right? And so he's prosecuted these police officers many times for going too far. He said, in no circumstance would, would these people have been, like, did these police go beyond what they're called to do and what they should have done? And he believes that they should at least be found not guilty of their crimes that they're charged with. And again, if that happens, get ready. Mike Slater.locals.com. I'll put all that information on uh, our website. George Floyd info. I'll put all that on the website right now. Mike Slater.locals.com. Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Going on, Team Buck. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Mike Slater.locals.com. Uh, I don't know if what I just shared there made people upset, but uh, get ready. Get ready for this trial and then the, the verdict that comes. It all depends on the jury. It all depends on the jury. Um, I want to share a little thing here about minimum wage because uh, so I, uh, Zo, Zo Rachel, Zo, Zo Rachel, uh, he made such a great point on my TV show. Buck and I both have shows on the first. He said, when Democrats say there's systemic racism, conservatives come back and say, no, there's not. And he says, hey, conservatives, you should say, yes, there is systemic racism. And you're the racists. <laughs> you're the ones doing it. I said, so what's a good example? I'll give you one right here. Minimum wage. Minimum wage is a racist policy. The intent of minimum wage was to hurt people of color. Now, progressives, they're the ones who are in favor of it today still. And they say, oh, we want minimum wage because we're going to help lower income people. We're going to give them more money. And then they pat themselves on the back for being so thoughtful and wonderful. And conservatives look at this, a minimum wage, and we say, well, hold on. The real minimum wage is zero. You raise the minimum wage, it's going to get people unemployed, and they're going to get fired, and they're going to get replaced by a machine and all this. So this raising the minimum wage actually hurts the people who progressives say it's going to help. Right? So let's take a single black woman. She's making $8 an hour. So now we pass a law, raise the minimum wage to $15, but progressives look at that and say, oh, now she's making twice as much money. And conservatives look at that, well, no, she was just fired. She makes $0 now. And now she's entirely dependent on the government and all the problems that come with that. Now, a conservative would look at this and say, hey, progressives, you got to look at the unintended consequences of a policy. You maybe have good intentions, but you got to look at the unintended consequences. That's what, that's what I used to say. But now my argument, based on the history of the minimum wage, is that the original intent of the minimum wage was explicitly to kick undesirable people out of the labor force. This is not an unintended consequence of the minimum wage. This was the original point of the minimum wage. It's working perfectly. Let me back it up. Eugenics hugely popular in the early 1900s in America. Very dark time in our history, but we don't hear a lot about it because it was a progressive idea. Spearheaded in the Ivy League schools the most, California performed 20,000 sterilizations just in our mental health institutions to prevent, to protect society from the offspring of people with mental illness, right? And the Supreme Court upheld this. The Chief Justice, who used to, uh, he was the um, 
head of the medical school at Harvard. He said three generations of imbeciles are enough. So let's prevent these people from, from procreating, right? So the Ivy League, they loved eugenics. Um, and if it weren't for this guy, Adolf Hitler coming to power, he gave it all a bad name. And if it weren't for him, then America would possibly still be leading eugenics around the world, although maybe we are with abortion. I bring this up because the idea behind eugenics is we are scientifically going to make a better race of people. So how do we do that? Well, we have to rid the gene pool of certain people. We have to purify the gene pool and we'll make then better, stronger people in a better society. Same thinking. If you could rid these people from the gene pool, we can also ban them from the labor force. And what was the way that these people decided to do that? Minimum wage. This is economics professor uh, F. Tossig. He said certain types of criminals and paupers, this is back in the day, certain types of criminals and paupers breed only their kind. And society has a right and a duty to protect its members from the repeated burden of maintaining and guarding such parasites. The human race could be immensely improved in quality and its capacity for happy living immensely increased if those of poor physical and mental endowment were prevented from multiplying. He said the feeble-minded, quote, should simply be stamped out. We have not reached the stage where we can proceed to chloroform, chloroform them once and for all, but at least they can be segregated, shut up in refuges and, and asylums, and prevented from propagating their kind. That was the progressive liberal elite view at the time. Similarly, how do we ban the feeble-minded from employment? Raise the minimum wage. Arthur Holcomb, he was a Harvard professor. He wrote about the uh, minimum wage in Australia. He said it was done to protect the white Australians' standard of living from the insidious competition of the colored races, particularly of the Chinese. Minimum wage laws were passed in the North when there was a major exodus from uh, of black people from the South, and they passed minimum wage laws to prevent the black people from taking those jobs. And same thing today. It's, oh, it's couched much nicer. But the end result's the exact same. Hurts low-income people the most, and it hurts people of color the most. So there's three groups of people here when it comes to the minimum wage. You have the utopians, the progressives, who say, oh, we got to raise the minimum wage and help people. You have conservatives who say, oh, we got to raise, you can't raise the minimum wage because that will unintentionally hurt people. And then you have me, who says, oh, raising the minimum wage you can't do that because it will do exactly what it was designed to do. Hurt certain people. Should I play the left's game? Let me play the game. Let me play the game. If you support raising the minimum wage, you're a racist. Mike Slater. .locals.com. That's our website, MikeSlater.locals.com. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, what's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton again? Jeez, Buck. Come on, hurry back. Hate this Slater guy. He'll be back tomorrow. Don't worry. Uh, so we just had two pretty heavy segments there. Provocative. Uh, I want to lighten it up a bit and talk about uh, virtue, specifically feminine virtues. We hear all the time about toxic masculinity, and I would argue that as, as screwed up as, as ill-defined as masculinity is in our culture, 
uh, femininity is just as poorly defined. So we'll do that coming up next. First, Express VPN. Oh, you got to do this. You got to get it because that's the only way around big tech. Because here's the thing. You can get off the big tech sites, right? You can get off Facebook, get off Twitter. Get, you can get off that stuff. You're still being followed everywhere, right? Your browser, you got Google Chrome. Like everything, you can't, you can't get away from using the internet. So the only way to get around it is ExpressVPN. So they, uh, they make you anonymous, right? Your online presence, they hide your IP address. So it makes everything you do uh, difficult to trace and, and therefore sell to advertisers. And you're not being followed all the time. And you can do it on your phone too. Remember I was telling my wife about it a while back. And she's like, yeah, but what about our phone? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They do that too. And they encrypt 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and, and uh, everyone else on the internet too. ExpressVPN.com slash buck expressvpn.com slash buck and you get a uh, uh, three months free three months of expressvpn service for free because you're listening to the buck sexton show expressvpn.com slash buck and protect your data today what's going on team buck mike slater here filling in again for buck sexton i know you're annoyed that i'm here buck's not but buck will be back tomorrow i want to uh change gears here can we uh, like downshift a minute so we just talked about george floyd well we talked about vaccine passports and we talked about george floyd and we talked about the minimum wage and eugenics eugenics systems uh eugenics and it's like oh geez heavy show uh let's take a minute and talk about something beautiful because we need more of that in our culture yesterday we spent this hour talking about Lil Nas X and his new song and his Satan shoes and all this ridiculous stuff. And my point was, don't outsource the raising of your kids to people who hate you and to people who hate your worldview. Take control back. And instead of, because when you, when you let your kids listen to the music that people in Hollywood and the movies that people in Hollywood and the video games, also, like, like the people who make that stuff, they hate you. I don't like they hate your worldview. Blues Clues, Blues Clues did an alphabet song. P was for pride, and it was they had the ra- they had the rainbow flag, the gay rainbow flag, and then eight other flags like the transgender flag and the lesbian flag and the intersex flag. And it's like, what Blues Clues? Three to five year old blue Blues Clues. Okay, so your kid, if you don't raise your kids, you're letting these people do it for you, and these people are bombarding your kids with ugliness. So it is your job to surround your kids with beautiful things. That is my plea to you. So what is beautiful? Well, there's things that are objectively beautiful. The world shows your kids dancing. And it's ugly. And it's girl, like little girls, like shoving their crotch at the camera, stuff like that. It's like ugly dancing. So you need to show your kids beautiful dancing. Show your kids. Your, I, have a, I have a little girl. As I'm doing this segment, I'm thinking of my, my daughter, Grace. She's three. Just turned three. She's amazing. I love this girl. She's bounding full of joy. And every once in a while, we'll watch videos of ballet. And we'll watch videos of the tango. Right? That's a sensual dance, but it's beautiful. The world gives your kids terrible music. So surround your kids with, and you're in your home with, with 
beautiful music. It's called classical music for a reason. And if you want to modernize it a bit, uh, my son and I, we listen a lot to John Williams. John Williams is the composer behind Star Wars and Jurassic Park and E.T. And we just sit and we just listen to the music and we say, oh, who are the bad guys? Are the bad guys winning? Are the good guys winning? And we just talk about the music. Oh, do you hear that part? Do you hear the violin coming in here? Whatever. That's beautiful music. The world pumps terrible TV shows into your home. Watch no TV. <laughs> Go outside. If you must, watch Little House on the Prairie. Watch the Andy Griffith Show. And you're like laughing at this. You're scoffing at this. Why? You're in charge. You set the culture of your home. And throughout all this, promote masculine and feminine virtues in your home as well. And that's what I want to talk about in this segment. We have been told for a long time now about toxic masculinity. I argue that there's no such thing as toxic masculinity because masculinity is a virtue and you can't have toxic virtues. The fruits of the spirit are uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no such thing as toxic peace or toxic joy or toxic self-control. Similarly, masculinity is a virtue. There's no toxicness of it. There's not properly defined masculinity, no, no doubt about that, but that's not masculinity. And just as we do a poor job, to say the least, of defining what true masculinity is, We've done an equally, if not worse, job of defining femininity. Now, my local show, we've talked about masculinity a billion times. It's easier for me. I am a guy, and I have two sons, four and one. So I've thought a lot about this, and I haven't thought as much about femininity. But then I realized I have a three-year-old daughter, and I better figure this out. Because if I don't, someone else is going to do it for her. This is my job, and I'm not going to outsource it to Cardi B. It is my job to emphasize, to have clearly defined and to emphasize the great feminine virtues in her and give her that to strive for. So let's talk about four great feminine virtues right here. And I'd love to hear some more. Oh, goodness, if you have some more, I'd love to hear them. Um, MikeSlater.Locals.com. Please join us over there. And actually, no, let me, I'll, put some, uh, I'll put a post up there so you can comment on the post. Specifically, uh, femme virtues, MikeSlater.locals.com. So Evie is a really wonderful women's online magazine from a conservative worldview. It's really good. Uh, it's a beautiful website, E-V-I-E. I think it's, e I think it's just E-V-I-E.com, E-V-I-E, Evie Magazine. Yeah, EVMagazine.com. It's really, really good. So they have an article. Uh, it's called Want to Attract a Good Man? Four Feminine Virtues to Strive For. This, this magazine is mostly geared towards like millennial and, and young women. So four feminine virtues. First, be graceful. Being graceful is not necessarily about how you move your body, but about how you conduct and control yourself. It means taking hardship in stride. Uh, what's Proverbs? So Proverbs 31 is all about uh, the wife of noble character. She's worth far more than rubies. Uh, there's one line in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's clothed in strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Mm. Proverbs 31, 25. She can laugh at the days to come. She's not full of anxiety and worry. She's in complete control of herself. It means taking hardships and stride, not letting things get to you too deeply. Instead of being petty, holding a grudge, or getting mad at someone, a graceful woman is patient and forgiving. 
Grace is what helps a woman to manage her relationships and maintain harmony among those around her. Are you seeing the women in your life, the women you know, who, who have this grace, or maybe women who don't? Being graceful means leaving people off, better off than when we found them. A graceful woman is comfortable with her femininity. She doesn't try to be masculine, and she's not overtly sexual. See, that's like Cardi B, and, and just the culture of today, is femininity is you have to be vulgar. Right? You have to be overtly sexual and vulgar like a man. It's like, no. She likes who she is, and she's charming, polite, elegant, kind, and generous. First, feminine virtue, graceful. Second, be beautiful. A woman's beauty and her virtue go hand in hand. If a woman acts virtuously, she'll be more beautiful. True beauty radiates from within to the outer world. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote that the three characteristics of beauty are radiance, harmony, and wholeness. Oh, that's so good. St. Thomas Aquinas. Let me get a year on uh, St. Thomas Aquinas here. 1250 or so. St. Thomas Aquinas. So the three characteristics of beauty are radiance, harmony, and wholeness. Beauty occurs when we treat ourselves, others, and the world around us as best as we can. Striving for health and wholesomeness makes you beautiful. So again, uh, this is an obvious one, right? Our perception of beauty in America is, uh, you know, it's just sexual. And that's not true. It's radiance, harmony, and wholeness. Number three, respect your body. A virtuous woman treasures herself and treats herself like a pearl. She doesn't give her body away just to anyone. She has strong boundaries, and she knows she's precious and valuable. Um, a, a good man will recognize that you're cognizant of the importance of treating your physicality well. As you respect yourself, so will so he will respect you. That's true. And uh, fourth, be sisterly. A virtuous woman is not catty and mean, but sisterly, kind, supportive of other women in her life. It means not get, not gossiping, being manipulative, or acting cruel. Uh, a virtuous woman will not put other women down with the mistaken belief that it will lift her up. And she'll try her best to be supportive and happy of other women. One of my best friends is uh, dating a girl now. And uh, I said, you know, what's your favorite thing about her? And he said, I love how she is loved by her friends. Her friends love her, which means she is very sisterly. You should be wary of the woman who doesn't have any girlfriends. So I'll put all those on mikeslater.locals.com. Be graceful, be beautiful, respect your body, be sisterly. These are just four of many feminine virtues. I'll end with this story here. It's one of my favorites. Gates of Fire, you have to read it. It's written by Stephen Pressfield. It's about the Battle of Thermopylae. It's a must read. And he tells a story of Leonidas. And Leonidas, the king of Sparta, he chose the 300 men. And how did he choose the 300 men? Well, he chose one husband. He chose this woman's husband and this woman's son. So all these men were going to die. They all knew it. So this woman was going to lose her husband and her son, two loved ones. So she went to go see Leonidas and begged him to, I think she put it, not visit upon her this double portion of grief. And Leonidas says, woman, do you know why I chose these 300 men? Why, would you think, why do you think he chose these 300 men? Well, they're the best fighters, the best warriors. No. Uh, maybe they're, uh, I don't know, my, my favorite. Whatever. Maybe I was bribed to take these 300 and not others. 
And Leonidas tells the woman, he says, I chose these 300 men, not for their valor, but for the valor of their wives. He knew that these 300 men were going to die. He knew that the Persians were going to march through. And once they won that battle at Thermopylae, he knew that the rest of Greece was going to look towards Sparta on how to react. And the people of Sparta were going to look towards the wives and mothers of those who were killed to know how to react. And Leonidas says, all of Greece will look to the Spartans to see how they bear this loss. And if they behold that your hearts are stricken, broken with grief, then they too will break and Greece will break with them. But if you bear up dry-eyed, not alone enduring your loss, but seizing it with contempt for its agony and embracing it as the honor that is in the truth, then Sparta will stand and all of Greece will stand behind her. The 300 men were chosen because of the women. We need more Spartan women today. Not stoic, that's not it. Not emotionless, but whole and complete and graceful and truly beautiful. Or you could just have them watch Little Nas X's video and Cardi B and dance and sing and act like whores all down. But that's fine. You could do that for your daughters too. Well, either way, MikeSlater.Locals.com. I'll put these articles up there so you can uh, read them yourself and comment. MikeSlater.Locals.com. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? I got a few more minutes here, so let me uh, stay on, on topic here. Sort of. So we just talked about femininity, and now I want to talk about effeminacy. You're like, oh, Slater, I don't... So we just talked about the feminine virtues. Some feminine virtues. But now I want to talk about effeminacy. It sounds the same. It's different. Men are often insulted or can be insulted when they're called effeminine. Effeminine. E-F-F-E-M-I-N. Effeminine. This is a man who is not manly. The second definition in the dictionary of effeminine is marked by an unbecoming delicacy. <laughs> St. Thomas Aquinas, who we just quoted earlier, he wrote about this in the 1200s. He called, him, he called it molities, like a mollusk. That's where we get the word mollusk. A mollusk is a soft, it's like a snail, right? It means, molity means softness. Mollusks, the snails are soft on the inside of their shell, right? And St. Thomas Aquinas, he quoted Aristotle, the man who is fond of amusement is effeminate. On the contrary, the persevering man is opposed to the effeminate. He said the uh, Aquinas says that a, uh, a man can be called effeminate if they readily yield to the touch. <laughs> right? like, like a soft breeze rolls through and a man falls over. I love this line. Uh, properly speaking, an effeminate man, this is Aquinas, is one who withdraws from good on account of sorrow caused by lack of pleasure. So I'm not getting enough pleasure. Therefore, you crumble and fall and become weak. I'd argue that we become an effeminate people, weak and soft the military did this whole study because they were wondering why during basic training so many people's bones were breaking 
And they were, they were, they were, they were, they were like, you give them a ruck, rucksack to have them run and their bones would just break like brittle bird bones, little puny, brittle bird bone breaking, just like going for a run. So the military had to do this whole thing about giving kids more, uh, giving these recruits more calcium with calcium bars and stuff like that. It's like, what in the world's happening? It's because there was weak, soft, effeminate, attached to pleasure, video games, immediate gratification. Life is too comfortable. People that men and boys, they don't, they don't run. They don't lift anything. They're just weak. I imagine taking a 13 year old today, bringing him back in time, 150 years ago, 80 years ago, whatever, working in the fields with dad and, Right, it's like oh, it's like a different planet. Oh, uh. Kids today just—they're weak. They play video games. They eat junk. Like, we're like a different species. We're like mollusks <laughs> more than men. And you see it in in adult men too—men who are attached to the appetites, sexual appetites, food, drink, video games, sleep, porn. These are men. These are men who are acting out of pleasure. That's not masculinity. That's a femininity masculine men put aside pleasure to do what is right and necessary a feminine men don't uh, uh, masculine men don't watch porn masculine men put aside urges and protect and serve and love a single woman and put that woman above himself and his immediate gratification a feminine males have no self-control, no self-discipline. They're only they're slaves to their appetites, slave to their cravings. Masculine men are slaves to virtue and reason and build honor in the process. Mike Slater.locals.com. That's our website. Join us there, Mike Slater.locals.com. Coming up next, I'll tell you the worst thing that I've ever heard so far at one of these diversity seminars. We'll do it next. Mike Slater, spread the word. Team Bach, America's the greatest country in the world. The great disappointment continues. You tune in. Where's Buck? Who is this guy? I didn't like Slater. I guess yesterday's show was okay, but I don't like him anymore, and I want you back, Buck. Where's Buck? He'll be back tomorrow. Uh, but thanks for, for letting me fill in for Buck these last few days. I hope we can do it again. Uh, I have for you this final hour here after talking about the George Floyd trial in the last hour and vaccine passports in the first hour and telling an amazing story of uh, Leonidas and the great feminine virtues. What else do we do? Oh, the true story of the minimum wage goes back to the eugenics movement uh, about 100 years ago. I want to talk in this segment about something that, uh, an insight that will, um, if you do it, Make your life infinitely better. You have infinitely, immeasurable more peace and harmony in your home if you do this. The thing is, you won't. And I say that because I don't. <laughs> I do sometimes. Sometimes I do. But it's really, really, really hard. If you can do this thing, though, this is a life-changing, I don't know what you call it, Practice? Yeah, life-changing practice. Let me back it up a second. So you've heard, I know Buck's talked about these diversity seminars, diversity, inclusion, and equity, and how they're the opposite of each of those things, right? They're the opposite of diversity, the opposite of inclusion, the, the opposite of equity. Uh, San Diego County had one of these. 
It was the Health and Human Services Department. They had a six-hour diversity training seminar. Right? Health and Human Services. Like they got nothing better to do than sit through six hours, a whole day, of diversity training. Okay, talk about how racist you are, right? So it's all the normal stuff, right? You're born racist. If you deny it, that's proof that you're racist. It's the whole segment. Part of it's about how black people can't be racist because racism is bias plus power. It's all the same nonsense, right? But this is the slide that, of all the training seminars, this one may be the worst I've seen. This slide. It says at the top, dear white people, when you say, and then it lists a bunch of things, one, like a whole column of things. And then on the other column, it says, what I hear. Okay. So when you say these things, I hear these things. Now, there's always going to be a level of misunderstanding in human communication, right? Something like words exit my mouth. These sound vibrations exit my mouth and go into the air unchanged. They, they leave unchanged. They leave my mouth. They, they travel through the air unchanged. And as soon as they hit your brain, they're immediately filtered through a giant machine of expectations and bias and pride and defensiveness and life experience and trauma and selfishness and, uh, and greed and all the, and as soon as that happens, there's going to be misinterpretation. Now, there's always going to be a certain amount of it that's understandable. So if I say, hey, you know what? It's been great to see you. We should get some dinner together sometime. Now, what did I say? I said we should get to dinner some, get some dinner sometime. But your brain, your insecurities, your whatever, are thinking, hmm, does he really want to get dinner? Or is he just being nice? Does he really like me? Do I really, should we really go out? Do we not want to go out? Do, do I like, right? You're like, right, you know, it makes sense. So like, that's a normal range of misunderstanding. Happens at work, happens in marriage, happens all the time. But then there's this, okay? So the slide said, dear white people, when you say, if the riots come near my house, I'm going to get my gun. That's what you say. I hear you fantasize about killing black people. <laughs> okay. Now listen, again, normal range of misunderstanding is allowed. But if I say, again, oh, geez, if these riots come to my house, I'm going to get my gun to protect my family. And you hear, whoa, so you fantasize about killing me? Oh, what a racist. Like, come on. Like, at a certain point, I can't be responsible for your delusion. I can't be. I can't be responsible for your absolute derangement. How can I be responsible for complete, you completely blowing something out of proportion. Like, I, I, that's not me. That's on you and your therapist, I, which you should definitely have, by the way. I, I can't be responsible for that. I'm, I would definitely protect my family if riots come to our house. Oh, so you want to murder all the blacks? Like, what? That was at the San Diego Health and Human Services. That's the diversity slide, the diversity seminar. Okay, so what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Here's the suggestion. We need to assume the best of people that we're having conversations with. And if we have any questions, uh, ask them. Doesn't that sound healthier? <laughs> now, let me take it to the next level. Here's the Jordan Peterson clip that will change your life. Now, 
just yesterday, I uh, did this and it worked very well. Also just yesterday, I did not do this with my wife and it went not very well. So <laughs> can I tell you, if you do it, it'll change your life, but it's very hard to do. Here's Jordan Peterson's advice. The next time you get into an argument with your wife or your friend or a small group of friends, stop the discussion for a moment and for an experiment, institute this rule. Each person can speak up for himself only after he has first restated the ideas and feelings of the previous speaker accurately. What accurately means is they have to agree with your restatement. Now that's an annoying thing to do because if someone is talking to you and you disagree with them, the first thing you want to do is take their argument, make the stupidest possible thing out of it that you can, that's the straw man, and then demolish it. It's like, so then you can walk away feeling good about it and you know, you've primate dominated them really nicely. So, but that isn't what you do. You say, okay, well, I'm going to take what you told me and maybe I'm even going to make your argument stronger than the one you made. That's useful if you're dealing with someone that you have to live with because maybe they can't bloody well express themselves very well, but they have something to say. So you make their argument strong. All right, then you see what this would mean. It would mean that be before presenting your own point of view, it would be necessary for you to really achieve the other speaker's frame of reference to understand his thoughts and feelings so well that you could summarize them for him. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But if you will try it, you'll find that it's the most difficult thing that you've ever done. Mm. I forgot about that last line there. Yeah, it's true. I like the line he says, you, great, you've primate dominated them. <laughs> good, congratulations. You've primate dominated your wife. You feel good? So what he's talking about is the steel man making a steel man. We know a straw man argument. Straw man argument is you make the other person's argument weaker and then you crush it. Okay, big deal. Steel man is you make the other person's argument stronger and then you address it. It's absolutely brilliant. So someone says something, you say, all right, well, let me, I just want to make sure I hear you right. And then you repeat what they said and you got to repeat it so, so well that they say, wow, yeah, that, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's perfect. I, I, I wish I put it like that. Now you can crush them. <laughs> but you see how much more noble and heroic that is? No one does it. No one does it. What do we do instead? Well, when we have conversations, um, well, I got one more Peterson clip here. Uh, and this goes back to the, the slide, right? The, the diversity seminar. If riots come to my house, I'm going to go get my gun. And you hear, oh, you fantasize about killing black people? Like, oh. Here's what Peterson says. One of Roger's points is, well, you have to be oriented properly in order to listen. And the orientation has to be, look, what I want out of this conversation is that the place we both end up is better than the place we left. That's it. That's what I'm after. And if you're not after that, you've got to think, why the hell wouldn't you be after that? What could you possibly be after that would be better than that? You walk away smarter and more well-equipped for the world than you were before you had the conversation, and so does the other person. Well, maybe if you're bitter and resentful and angry and anxious and, you know, generally annoyed at the world, then that isn't what you want. You want the other person to walk away worse and you too, because you're full of revenge. But, you know, you'll get what you want if you do that. So <laughs> bitter, angry, resentful and anxious, generally annoyed at the world. Why are we taking these diversity seminars from these people? 
these people who are bitter, angry, resentful, anxious, and annoyed at the world. So they get up there and they shame everyone. Everyone's shaming everyone. When what we really need is more honor. We need more honor. The way to overcome any bias or any prejudice is in someone is to build up their honor. But instead, we do the opposite. We shame them. We shame people. And then we force people to shame themselves. We force, in this case, white people to shame themselves. Oh, yes, I am so racist. You're right. And we think that will help. No, no, no. We need more honor in our lives, not more shame. Uh, what's his name? McCracken. McCracken. I got it. Well, I got the book right here. Uh, Grant McCracken. The book's called The New Honor Code. A Simple Plan for Raising Our Standards and Restoring Our Good Names. Great book. He says... Their anti-racing training is dangerous because it asks people to attack their personal honor. Worse, it asks them to attack the very thing we want them to respect in others. That we respect people of color or people different than us is one of the ways we know we are honorable. It's one of the ways we make ourselves honorable. We respect everyone's dignity as an expression of our own dignity. Yet, yet we, here we are, these people are just shaming everyone and you're supposed to shame yourselves and shame others. No surprise, of course. The woke left, these die seminars think they have it completely backwards. Well, if we assume they have good intentions, they have it backwards. If they have bad intentions, if they're bitter, angry, resentful, anxious, and generally annoyed at the world, and they want everyone to walk away worse, then they're doing a perfect job. MikeSlater.locals.com. I'll put that video up on our website. Uh, Mike Slater dot locals dot com filling in for Buck Sexton spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater filling in for Buck Sexton for one more day. Buck will be back tomorrow. I want to play this clip here. Uh, clip here. This is the former senator from North Dakota, Democrat Heidi Heitkamp, talking about Gina Serrano. This is the Gina. She was canceled off of uh, the Mandalorian, the Star Wars show on Disney Plus. Uh, she was canceled. So here is uh, here's this is from uh, Bill Marsha. I like this picture. Uh, who was the woman in the Mandalorian? What did she do? She liked something? Or... She was a Nazi. Oh, that's different, yeah. right? I'm thinking of somebody else. Well, she's not a Nazi. She, she, yeah, she was, she's a white. A she's See, look at that. She's you say you're calling her a Nazi. She's called other people Nazis. Right. So which she's is, the Nazi. Okay, everyone's yeah. a Nazi now. Yeah. Um, she does hang with white supremacists. It's like a Mel Brooks she does. Movie. Yeah. Hangs with white supremacists. I suppose I'm now get subject to defamation. I, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what your definition of white supremacist is. That your, also, the goalposts yeah. there changed a lot. Your, Used to be a guy in a clan hood right. who... But I think... Isn't have, this great? Think, so they got, she, listen to it. See how casual, like, oh, yeah, she's a Nazi. What? Oh, well, she she's involved with white supremacy. She hangs around with white supremacists. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's, that is a ridiculous way to talk. So I want to talk about this term whiteness. Whiteness. Oh, it's everywhere. It's awful. You have it. You are it. It's worse than COVID, no doubt about it. Tortures, it kills. It's been around for 400 years. It's never been worse, this whiteness. It's everywhere. LA Times, Hollywood's entertainment industry unions have a whiteness problem. New York Times, the incredible whiteness of the museum fashion collection. The Smithsonian, facing your whiteness is hard. Whiteness? <laughs> what, are you, 
What is my whiteness? Washington Post, to understand Trump's support, we must think in terms of multiracial whiteness. Just do a Google News search for whiteness. (laughs) St. Louis Dispatch, the insurrection and the devalued currency of whiteness. LA Times, at Netflix, Cobra Kai broke out. Now it's whiteness is under a new spotlight. It goes on and on. What is is whiteness? (laughs) Well, it's nothing which is the point, it's impossible to define. That's why you can just say, oh yeah, she hangs around with white supremacy. supremacists. She's involved with white supremacy. What are, you, what are you talking about? It's nothing. Whiteness is nothing. It's impossible to define. And that's not a bug of the term. That's the feature. That's the best part of that term. It just means bad. But it's not even about race. It's an ideology. Because other races can, be, can have whiteness or be white-adjacent or benefit from whiteness, or have close ties to whiteness. Whiteness is just another word for bad, evil, sinful. This is Nancy Pelosi. It's been an epiphany for the world to see that there are people in our country led by the president, this is about Trump, who have chosen their whiteness over democracy. See that? So it just means that people have chosen something bad over something good. Whiteness is a smear. you don't have to be a too great of a student of history to understand that uh, this goes poorly. Smearing people because of their race doesn't end well. But here I am, I was about to go into a whole rant about meritocracy, but uh, meritocracy is whiteness. You look at these slides that say um, aspects of white supremacy, meritocracy is one of them. This is why you know Biden's pick for the number two job at Health and Human Services is the Pennsylvania Health Secretary, who first of all sent COVID patients back to the nursing homes, just like Cuomo did in New York, while removing her mom from the nursing home at the same time. You with me? So she sent COVID patients back to nursing homes, which ravaged the nursing homes, and she knew it was a bad decision because she took her mom out of the nursing home at the same time. And... Biden's pick for this job at Health and Human Services is a man who thinks he's a woman. Now, are you telling me there's no one else in the country more qualified for this job? Qualified? Oh, that's your whiteness speaking. It doesn't, it's not about, it's not about merit. Ooh, that's pretty racist of you. Pretty colonial of you, pretty white supremacist of you, Slater. Geez, it's all about victimhood. We're here to remove whiteness and white people from positions of power and putting in the marginalized. Now, this guy's white. His name's Richard. But uh, because he's now living as a woman, therefore, he can benefit from it all. Hmm. I love this headline from the great Babylon Bee. Babylon B, it's like the onion. Far-right extremists suggest treating people of all races equally. Ooh, that is some pretty far-right stuff there. Coming up next, I want to, uh, that's some some modern-day clan stuff right there. I believe we should treat people of all races equally and judge them by the content of their character. Cancel that man! Coming up next, I want to share a story of Telemann and Alexander the Great, Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Buck will be back tomorrow. So this is my last day filling in for Buck. 
over the last four. It's been wonderful. I kind of feel like it's a Friday because it's the last, it's like our last segment of us together. So I just want to share something here that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I don't know who needs to hear it. And it may be wildly irrelevant to you. Uh, put it in your back pocket either way, but you may actually really need to hear this today. And I, and I hope, I hope that's you. I love this story. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. And he moved his way into India. Uh, today it would be modern-day Pakistan. So it's 325 BC. And when this Alexander and his massive army, when they got there, they came across these men that they've never seen before. Yogis. They called them Yimnosophists. Yimno or Jimno, it's where we get gymnasium, means naked. And sophists means wise men. They were called the naked wise men. These yogis, they had nothing. They spent their entire life in poverty, in deep contemplation, and stillness. They owned nothing. They had a loincloth and a begging bowl. And they would congregate in the sun along the banks of rivers. Alexander the Great and his men, they've never seen people like this in their entire lives. Which is crazy to think about, right? Like we've, I feel like we've seen everything that there is, right? I mean, there's a statue in, um, I think it's Trafalgar Square in, in London, and it's a statue of a lion. But when the guy who made the statue, he's never seen, he never saw a lion before. So he could just do it based off of what he heard, and he used like a dog's body but dogs and lions have different bodies, like the way their legs, uh, so, so it's like, it's all screwed up, but they've never seen a lion, which is crazy. My kids went to the zoo yesterday, saw a lion. So like we've, we've seen yogis, like you could picture a yogi, even if you've never seen one in real life, but Alexander the Great, they've never seen these people. Like imagine how bizarre this would be. So Alexander's men, they're looking, uh, they want to pass along this river, but there's a bunch of these silly yogis in the way and they're meditating. So one of Alexander's men, they rush ahead and they try to, he, he tells the yogis to leave, get out of the way. And this yogi, he says, no. We have as much of a right to this space as anyone. So Alexander sees this going on and he approaches the yogi who's sitting cross-legged and says, uh, you guys got to get out of the way. And the yogi says, no. And Alexander's man, he says, don't you know who this man is? This is Alexander the Great. This man has conquered the world. What have you done? And the yogi, and I imagine in this story, I imagine he does, I imagine he's like sitting cross-legged and he's, he's staring ahead or maybe his eyes are closed and he's looking at, and, and he doesn't even open his eyes. He doesn't move his head. Doesn't, that's how I imagine it. So the guy says, he's conquered the world. What have you done? And the yogi says, I've conquered the need to conquer the world. And Alexander the Great cracked up, loved that answer, saluted the yogi, and they found another way around him, and he let them all be. <laughs> I've conquered the need to conquer the world. One of the men uh, that was with Alexander, one of his right-hand men, his name was Telamon. 
And later on, they were sitting by the banks of one of these rivers in India, and Telamon was so impressed with these yogis. Telamon was a mercenary, lived his life as a warrior. And he thought it was time to transition out of that life phase, and he wanted to become a sage. So Telamon goes to Alexander and says, life is a battle, isn't it? And how better to train for it than to be a soldier? For have you not noticed of these sages, my friend, that they're the consummate soldiers? He's talking about the yogis. Inured to pain, so pain doesn't bother him, oblivious to hardship, each takes up his post at dawn and does not relinquish it for thirst, hunger, heat, cold, fatigue. He's cheerful in all weathers, self-motivated, self-governed, self-commended. And Alexander says, are you saying, Telamon, that your training as a soldier prepares you for the vocation of a sage? And Telamon says, no, no, no. These men are beyond me. I would have to apprentice myself to them for many lifetimes. <laughs> He's like, I could never be as wise as these men are. That's how much he admired them. So that's just a cool story, but here's the relevancy to it, perhaps for you. On my local show a while back, we did a segment on the uh, six stages, six life stages of a man. I stole it from John Eldridge. And the six life stages quickly are boyhood, cowboy, warrior, lover, king, and sage. And, and each of these phases we don't properly define, we don't properly understand, we don't properly raise our kids. Actually, I'm going to put this on the website. Um, if you're interested in knowing more, just for the sake of time, I don't have time to do it here. Uh, life stages. I'll put it on mikeslater.locals.com and you can listen to a very brief um, description. There's a great interview he did about these six different life stages and how we don't understand them and therefore we don't do them and they need to be intentional and there needs to be a transition between each of them, like a deliberate rite of passage between each of these phases. And one of the great failures of our culture today is our lack of respect for our elders, for the sages. And you compare that to another extreme like Japanese culture, the leader, the elders are, are revered. All right? And the Confucian ethic, it's called filial piety. Filial piety, respect for elders. In America, we have a youth culture, youth culture. Right? That's why all of our music is terrible because it's all focused around appealing to kids. Right? This is why uh, the great global warming leader in america is greta thunberg okay she's a kid i saw an article about her the other day she's like she's like 18 now but the picture was still of her when she was 12. right we live in a youth-centric culture kids run the show kids run the house it's this very it's based off this very romantic and i'd say incorrect idea that youth are unspoiled they're born perfect and they get ruined the older they become Right? That's the romantic idea. That's the Rousseauian idea that you're born perfect and pure and civilization ruins you. So we need to listen to the pure, innocent children. And I think folly is bound up in the heart of a child and kids are idiots and they need to be taught and raised and trained on how to become adults. Very different worldview. And our culture today is mostly the youth-centric one. Then... We also have a culture where your worth as a human is determined based off your productiveness in the marketplace. 
and younger people can work harder than older people. So these older people, we just toss them aside. Who needs them anymore? We don't have a culture in America that values old wisdom. We don't have a culture that values ancient wisdom, like like old books. And we don't, like we tear down statues, right? And we also don't have a culture that values old people. We look at old people as backwards, super racist. They're not with the times. So because of that, we have a tough time in our culture with people transitioning from the stage of king to sage. So king is you're in charge of things. You're in charge of a business. You have employees. You have people under you. You are raising your family. You have a wife, kids. Uh, you, you volunteer at different things. You lead organizations, right? People look to you. You're the king. You're in charge. You bring order and stability. It's extremely important. And then when you're getting older, people don't want to let go of that because they think that's the end of their life and they're going to die. And what we need in our culture is to really celebrate the next stage of life, which is the sage. Sage means wise man. Ancient Greece, they had seven sages. We need more sages in America. They're not in power, but they're mentors to the kings who are in positions of authority. Because we have so many kings out there who are flying blind. They're living without the wisdom of people who have already made all those mistakes before. So we need to change our culture. We, we need kings that want sage advice, and we need sages who are willing to give kingly advice. I don't know how to change that in our culture other than to encourage you. I mean, maybe it's in our, our churches, but I think it's just one-on-one. Like, I just want to encourage you to reach out to a sage, or if you are in that sage phase, to really embrace that and reach out to a king. And maybe it should be done in our churches, right? really connect older people with younger people in business too. like connect younger, the, the current leaders with the leaders who were and get some advice and think of Telamon who was an, an incredible warrior who traveled the world and conquered the world with Alexander the great. People should be admiring him, him, the sages should be admiring him, but he wanted to be one of them. So if you're in that warrior king stage of life, like that's awesome. Let's crush it but find a sage. And if you're in the sage stage of life, find that, be a mentor, find the king, find the warrior. Because for either way, that can be one of the most fulfilling relationships you could possibly make. And I think our culture is desperately in need of more of it. Because right now we're all just flying blind. MikeSlater.Locals.com. I'll put that John Eldridge six stages of manhood up there, uh, up on the website, MikeSlater.Locals.com. And you can listen to it. It's a quick listen and it's wonderful. MikeSlater.Locals.com. Filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton for one last day. Well, five more minutes, and Buck will be back tomorrow. Uh, this is a while back, but there was an article in the LA Times. What can you do about the Trumpites next door? Very short of the story is she's in Tahoe, and it snowed, and her neighbor shoveled her walkway, shoveled her driveway, and did a great job but they're Trump supporters. And she turns it into a race thing about, oh, this is the thing that white people do to each other. You know, white people help out white people. But, you know, Hezbollah, the terrorist group in the Middle East, they also give, give away 
free things to their supporters. And so did the Nazis. She literally says that. She says, my neighbor supported a man who showed near murderous contempt for the majority of Americans. I can't give my neighbors absolution. It's not mine to give. Free driveway work, as nice as it is, is just not the same currency as justice and truth. And they're not looking for absolution anyway. I mean, this is amazing. Like she just goes on and just eviscerates this guy. And this is what the guy gets for shoveling her driveway. This is someone who is addicted to hate. Hate is a powerful drug. Read a study, they followed 89 former white supremacists. Their entire lives were just seeped in hatred. And that's what they were addicted to. And this is true for people of all races. It's not a white thing. It's a human experience. And you don't just snap out of hate into love. It's a drug. And people are addicted to it. People are, people are addicted to it personally and business models depend on it. That's the worst part about it. Business models depend on it. Bureaucracies depend on it. We talked the other day about Ohio State, $12 million a year in their diversity, inclusion, equity departments. Uh, the top paid guys, $275,000 a year. There's a bunch of people. There's no way any of those people making six figures are going to be like, oh, we're done. Race relations are solved here at Ohio State. Fantastic. You know, just go on forever. The bureaucracy depends on it. Business models depend on it. People's addictions depend on it. It's really hard to get rid of hate out of your lives and hate out of your society. We were doing a pretty good job of it, but then people really started to monetize it like never before. And I know we already quoted Jordan Peterson in this hour, but I'll do it again. He has a great riff on fixing yourself. He said, blaming others for your problems is a complete waste of time. When you do that, you don't learn anything. You can't grow. You can't mature. Thus, you can't make your life better. In my three decades as a clinical psychologist, I've learned that there's two fundamental attitudes towards life and its sorrows. Those with the first attitude blame the world. Those with the second ask what they could do differently. I read a study recently, and it was a study of, uh, it was either CEOs or millionaires, but you know, maybe, I think it was millionaires. And they did a psychological analysis of them. And, and they said the starkest difference between millionaires and, and not millionaires is when they fail. When a millionaire failed, they blamed themselves. And they saw it as an opportunity to get better and learn, and they did better. As opposed to other people who blame the world, blame others, and therefore don't learn and don't get better. It's going to be very hard to break this world's addiction to hate. Right? It, there's such a grift out there. Right? There's people just raking in the money with these diversity seminars and these books. There was a while, and it's probably still true now, but the number one books are all these, these anti-racist books. It's working, and politically it's working still. People still haven't caught on to what this is. The activists are infiltrating, have infiltrated our churches already. So there is an ideological battle. There is a, a, uh, a march through the institutions that is almost complete. Maybe business was the last domino to fall, but you've seen how businesses have gone completely woke. And it's all based on hate and division. And the people who come in and preach unity, you're called racist. You preach unity. You say, you say, oh, we should judge people by their character. Oh, you're denying the lived experience of people of color. 
you're the racist for saying we need to judge. Oh, you believe in meritocracy. Oh, that's a system of structural racism that is defined what merit is and it's a system that keeps people of color out blah 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 but you can't fix systems you can only fix yourself and the only way to fix yourself is to stop blaming others he says this the pro jordan he says the proper way to fix the world is not to fix the world there's no reason to assume that you're even up to such a task but you can fix yourself you'll do no one any harm by doing so and in that way at least you'll make the world a better place MikeSlater.locals.com. A bunch of stuff I got to put up on the website right now for you. MikeSlater.locals.com. You can join us there. And the great Buck Sexton. Finally, we'll be back tomorrow. Mike Slater. Spread the word.